Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, news aggregator websites. They've been criticised for not showing editorial judgement on their choice of highlighted articles. Are they responsible for the content they show? Established broadcasters fighting video on demand. Rupert Murdoch says the media industry needs its own competitor to Netflix and Amazon. Is he right? And corporate PR cutting out the press. Companies like Chevron have launched their own media sites to create news on their terms. Is this ethical? And as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Kenny Campbell is a former editor of the Metro newspaper and now director of the agency Campbell Brown. And John Godfrey is Group Communications Director at Legal & General. Media Focus. So first up, do automated news websites need to hire editors? Guardian CEO Andrew Miller has said that companies like Google and Facebook need to take editorial responsibility for the content posted on their sites to avoid what he calls dangerous, damaging or inflammatory material staying online. But they've hit back saying they don't need to do this because they're only distributing content and not publishing it. John, who's right? I think I uh, would uh, veer towards the side of the distributors on this one. Uh, I'm not sure they have a particularly greater responsibility than, for example, a news agent or a photocopying machine or any of those type of uh, analog equivalents. The responsibility, to my way of thinking, lies squarely with the original producers of the news. All these people are doing is finding a channel through which that news gets disseminated. Now, should the normal laws of, of libel apply... Well, that uh, that's a moot point, and maybe they should. But I think uh, we would be pushing a little bit too hard to create a separate and different new category of responsibility for people who only aggregate and offer access to existing news stories. But the aggregation is done by an algorithm, and clearly someone has to take responsibility for that, surely, if they're promoting certain stories uh, above others. I mean, it's not completely mindless. It might be automated, but there has been some thought put into it. Would you agree? There is a little bit of thought put into it, and... Uh, Perhaps the level of responsibility you might arrive at here is something that is factored into the way the algorithm works that uh, filters out some of the most egregious material. You could, for example, uh, devise an algorithm which uh, hooks out, uh, should we say, a racist comment, let's say, uh, would be one example. There may also be a way to filter out content that comes from very, very small providers of news which is a way of keeping, for example, extremist political comment or uh, other illegal items away. But I don't think you need to go terribly much further than that. Kenny, it must be difficult to automate this kind of stuff because even in a newspaper like the Metro, you will discuss issues like child pornography and racism and so on, and clearly people searching for those terms might be wanting to see uh, and hear a, a legitimate discussion of these issues, not necessarily for the thing. How, how do you kind of guard against that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I've got a very particular viewpoint, and it's because I've stood in the, the dock at the old Bailey de defending uh, my former newspaper. Um, things do go wrong. That's what happens. I don't think that, that the aggregators have to... Uh, have to edit. I think it's very simple. I think they have to work out who goes to jail when it all goes wrong, because stuff does go wrong. Um, Tell us about how you ended up in the dock then, that's very interesting. Well, without going into too much detail, um, it was one of the many investigations into the killing of John Charles de Menezes, the Brazilian uh, electrician who was shot dead by the Metropolitan Police on the underground. And we had a particular interest in this for, for several reasons, not least of which was the last thing that poor Mr... Menezes did before he was shot dead was picked up one of my papers. So the Met had killed one of my readers. There were several criminal investigations and there was a health and safety investigation as well. And for obvious reasons, we trod in eggshells over, uh, over the criminal investigations. 
The health and safety investigation, the rules surrounding what you can say and can't say are slightly different. They're slightly more lax and there are things that are permissible to say uh, under health and safety rules that you would not be allowed to say if there was a criminal investigation. The the judge overseeing the case didn't quite see it that way and uh, to cut a long story short, um, I was summonsed and decided to let the judge shout at me rather than pay yeah. many hundreds of thousands of pounds to have a QC defend the corner. In the end, um, we had done nothing wrong. The Attorney General said we were in the clear um, and we were, we, were, we were quite happy. But it was a most unusual... It was an out-of-body experience, actually, being in the dock at the Old Bailey. Very, very strange imagine. indeed. But, but you are, and I can confirm this, you are a human being. You know, you, you made a news <laughs> judgment there, whereas these news aggregator sites can't do that. They can't deliver the nuance. You know, when you pick up a copy of the Metro, it's a curated experience. You, as editor, decided what was on the front page, what was going to be the page lead on page six, and so on and so forth. Absolutely, but I think we miss a, a key point there in that the aggregator sites are already scraping material from sites that have been edited. And those sites that they're scraping material from have themselves scraped material from sites that have already been edited. The machine begins to eat itself. Uh, it's not the case that what you see on Google News or what Facebook puts up on your feed hasn't been edited at some point. It has. The problem comes when, um, for example, I think a, a major libel is committed and everybody gets caught out by reporting something that's been reported in a trusted source, for example, and perhaps Google sticks it up there, somebody relatively inexperienced doesn't see there's a problem, and somebody with the money and the legal knowledge to say, right, we think we're going to take, we're going to have a fight here, takes them on. And I think that will happen at some stage. I mean, why wouldn't it? Um, if, you, if, you repeat, if you repeat a libel, to, to stick with that example, in the end, somebody's going to come after the big targets. And what bigger target is there really than... Than, than Google News, for example. John, do you think, um, clearly these news aggregator websites are quite popular, but do you think they strip stories out of their context, as it were, that, you know, you, you're going to get what some algorithm decides you think you should watch and and it doesn't really kind of create a, a reasonable experience? There's something in that, but uh, I, I wonder if that isn't what happens in the minds of most readers when they pick up a newspaper. I mean, most people going through, for example, the Metro are not going to necessarily go through it from cover to cover reading it spectacularly carefully. It's a kind of dip in, dip out, and that's the way people people do things. So people are self-filtering, if you like, all the time and self-editing. So there's not a huge difference there. But I, I think what matters here, in a sense, is how far upstream you need to go or downstream you need to go before somebody takes responsibility. And the starting point, really, I think has got to be the first uh, mainstream source that reports the news. So it's not surprising to me, for example, that Kenny was was hauled up in front of the beak uh, for that one and, and acquitted the himself beak. very well. Oh, right. and acquitted <laughs> that's a real old school phrase, isn't it? <laughs> uh, uh, well, it sounds like that's rather what it was like. But acquitted himself very well and the newspaper very well for that uh, for that matter. So so that's fine. Now, if somebody had simply happened to pick out the Metro story and repeat it and push it around, uh, even if that was done by algorithm. I'm not sure that creates an additional layer of responsibility for somebody else that Kenny hasn't already answered for in that case. I mean, Kenny, what was your view as editor of the Metro for these news aggregator websites? Did you see them as kind of stealing readers or did, was it driving traffic to your site? Did you see it as a good thing or a bad thing? There was a cycle. In the early days when uh, what's now called legacy media were struggling with the idea of the internet, we viewed them as thieves. It was pure and simple. Uh, you're taking work that we've done, we've paid money for it, we've invested in this content... Um, and we're trying to run a business on the back of this content as well. Uh, and you're just taking it willy-nilly. Uh, you know, we were very angry. 
Uh, there was a there was a second phase then when it, it became quite apparent that as the as the internet developed, particularly as what they call internet version two developed, that um, the more people that commented on your story and indeed linked to it, the better it was for driving traffic to your online sites in particular. Um, and indeed, which your advertisers would have liked, presumably. Well, they would, depending if they were advertising on online sites, of course, because um, there isn't, you know, there's no guarantee that it's the same eyes that are going to be falling on the adverts mm-hmm. online as in the paper in the morning. But yes, the the, uh, the hard truth was that Facebook and, to a lesser extent, Twitter were basically your biggest free marketing tools, um, if you wanted to see it that way. So instead of fighting that, you began to embrace it in a very particular way. You encouraged people to, to link back. You encouraged people to comment. You encouraged people to uh, to have a almost a conversation about stories. But nevertheless, when something goes wrong, somebody still wants to know who's to blame. And there is a fundamental problem with the aggregator sites, and that is you cannot fine a computer and you cannot jail an algorithm. Mm. Um, and so that um, ability to say it was nothing to do with OzGov, very, very handy for them. But I, I don't think that it washes if they are the point where, for example, most people read a story that, it, that is controversial. I mean, John, Legal in General is a very reputable organisation, but for example, if, if some lone blogger decided that you'd, they'd been let down and they, they put a blog post which was, you know, has a nugget of truth but is largely libelous and largely untrue, you know, would you feel annoyed that Google would put that on page one if, it, if, it, if its algorithm considered it to be newsworthy? To be honest, I don't think I particularly would be. I mean, this, mm. this kind of thing uh, happens, you know, inevitably with any organisation of size, you get customers who feel you've let them down and... Uh, you know, in some cases, maybe even you have if you've mm. been a bit too slow or you've got something wrong. And uh, they have absolutely that redress to go on, on online. And if Google picks that up because their case is interesting enough or important enough, I think that is, uh, that is so to speak, a, a, a fair cop. In fact, That's a very sensible and considered in, in, position. In, 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 <laughs> in, in, in fact, I would almost welcome that kind of communication from customers because it puts a premium on the business. And, you know, for us as for anybody else to respond quickly and put things right. And what you find with, with customers who do break through, if you like, on the, uh, on, on the web uh, is that um, you respond very quickly. If you put a thing right, quite often those customers will give you credit for putting it right. So it can work in your favour as a company as well as against you. Mm. I mean, I, I must say, if you ever go on Twitter and you look at any, any major customer-facing brand like, say, Virgin Trains, for example, if you look at their Twitter it's full of hundreds of at mentions every day saying at David whatever. I'm really sorry that your your tea was spilled and so on. And you, I mean, clearly it's a good way of engaging with customers. So Kenny, you you mentioned Internet Two and the kind of transition of seeing Google from stealing your content into enabling it. Where do you think it's going to go next? Then do you think we've reached an equilibrium? Because you still have to, like you said, finance journalists, keep them producing content, and stop people, stop other organisations from nicking it. I don't think it's anywhere near an equilibrium. The stage we're at now, I suspect, is a transitional phase where we are, we're seeing um, almost, if you like, the clumping effect that happens in, in not just in media and business in general, where big players really start to, to come to the, to the fore. Uh, Mail Online, for example, is, is the default example of um, a traditional media brand that decided it was going to focus properly on, um, on what used to be called new media uh, and, and do it properly. Now, like everybody else, they, they they use the same tricks to drive traffic. They chase mm. the same numbers everybody everybody else does. Clickbait and so on. Actually, they're quite aggressive, though, aren't they? In terms of, um, you know, they they do have lots of their own content, but they also do 
you know, take all the major newspapers, and although they lead on it and link to it in the first paragraph, it must be annoying if you if you splashed on something in the metro and yet the Mail Online reports that it's your story but still gets more traffic. No, not at all. Uh, the saddest thing that can happen to you if you're uh, working in, in, in media of any sort is that people ignore you. Mm. Um, that's hell on earth. You know, people saying that you're rubbish is unpleasant, but at least they're reading, watching, listening. Uh, people not commenting, not engaging. That's it. You're out of business. And I mean, Mail Online is a great example. And the other, the other big legacy players, if you like, Telegraph, Guardian, what have you, uh, the same applies to them. They put a lot in as well as taking stuff out. There is a balance there, and they've struck the balance very well. Mail Online has just announced that it's going to put more boots on the ground. You know, they're going to be employing mm-hmm. what would have been called traditional reporters to get out there and, and work on stories on behalf of, of Mail Online. And so, you know, you can see them starting to take the lessons of 100 plus years of traditional journalism and applying them in a way that only a company with the resources and the willingness take those risks, um, can apply them. Um, so I think it is very much about give and take. Uh, my view, you're perfectly entitled to aggregate if A, you are prepared to take responsibility and B, it would be nice if you put some stuff back in as well. Indeed. Right, gentlemen, on to the next topic. How can established broadcasters compete with video on demand? Rupert Murdoch has urged pay TV companies to unite to fight the large online streaming companies like Netflix and Amazon. This follows the news that HBO plans to launch its own internet-only channel, bypassing the pay TV platform altogether. And instead of asking people to pay for a bundle of channels, they pay solely for the channels they actually want to watch. Kenny, do you think the traditional satellite and cable TV companies are doomed? Well, first up, I don't think... Um Rupert Murdoch and, and his huge teams are going to need any advice from an upstart like me. Um, <laughs> they may well be listening to this podcast, you never know. Well, that's the beginning of the end for them, <laughs> let me say that now. In terms of um, of this particular battle, uh, from my perspective, it's a real case of here we blooming go again. Mm. Huge organisations with fantastic success rates uh, generate an awful lot of money over the years trying to defend uh, a way of doing business that is becoming less and less relevant. Uh, we've seen it time and again. I've come out of newspapers where, you know, good grief me, books and books have been written on, on uh, how long it took newspapers to wake up to the threats and eventually the opportunities that the, that the brave new world brought. The music industry, exactly the same. You know, they, for years they thought they're job was to produce plastic discs of varying sizes mm. um, and they've had to go through a huge and very bloody restructure um, to the point where they are very, very different these days to the industry that we knew before. Even more recent um, success stories, I'm trying to think of Blockbuster, for example, late 80s and early 90s, which dominated uh, video rentals. Video rentals, who'd mm. have thought it? Those awful late fees, do you remember that? Well, mm. actually, Netflix, the fellow who launched Netflix launched it because he was fined 40 bucks by Blockbuster for returning a film late. I and did he not thought, know that. Hang on a second, I can do this. I can do something better here. In 2000, I believe Blockbuster had a chance to buy Netflix. $50 million. There's a figure off the top of my head. Mm. Google it, fact fans, just to check. <laughs> uh, you know, it's one of these classic examples of a company having the chance to strangle competition at birth. But there you go. I mean, the, the world is changing your audience is moving somewhere else. You have to go with your audience. If you don't go where your audience goes, eventually you don't have a business. That would be foolhardy of Mr. Murdoch or any other business person not to mount some sort of challenge. 
But, and it's a big but, if a company's focus remains on stopping the tide coming in, they're finished. Mm. If your audience moves elsewhere, you must go where your audience goes. Otherwise, you're not providing them with uh, with the content, with the product, with anything that they want. I mean, John, do you think they're finished, as it were? Because, I mean, I, I, I'm a Sky TV subscriber and we pay whatever stupid amount of money it is for a bundle of channels and half of them I don't even want, if I'm honest. I'd much rather pay slightly less and have the channels I want. Do you, do you think ultimately that this, as Kenny was saying then, that we're uh, trying to go against the tide? It, it does feel as if you have to evolve as an industry. It's been the example, you know, as, as, we, as we've heard, of, of newspapers. It's been the example of music. It's been the example even of retail, mm. you know, as people shop online and have stuff delivered rather than going to Tesco, you know, to the clear disappointment of Tesco and its shareholders. So industries change and, and, and those who run industries have to change with it. So I think that's uh, absolutely the case. Now, do I think uh, suppliers of, 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 of programs will have to change the way they do business? Absolutely, I do. And specifically to your point, I think we're moving ever more towards a world of greater choice. And I think people will, so to speak, dine a la carte and have the channels they want and not have to buy the package. It's inevitable. That's just the, what the consumer is driving us towards. They will have to respond. It's no good trying to stem the flow of the inevitable. But on the other hand, these upstarts like Netflix have clearly stolen a march on the, the traditional media giants. I mean, Murdoch is trying to play catch-up with like Now TV and things like this. But uh, as a consumer, what would you want? Would you want one online service that has access to all of the libraries or would you be happy to subscribe to five or six different services where Netflix will offer this and Now TV will offer that and Amazon? Where do you think the market will go ultimately? Personally, I would be quite happy to subscribe to several and, and be quite selective about that. Now, if I didn't want to spend very much time, you know, dealing with that part of my life, then I might want to get something that was bundled. You know, but I'd like to have the choice about what it is I do uh, and how much time and effort I want to put into thinking about this. I mean, Kenny, there is an issue, isn't there, that, for example, you, you seem to have got this right, where you can go on and record something in advance, or if there's something that, that was on recently, you can just scroll backwards through the planner. But whereas on, a, on my iPad, for example, I have to choose the channel first. I have to decide whether I'm going to go on to Demand 5 or 4OD or BBC iPlayer. I can't just naturally look at everything that's out there in the same way that you can with UView. Do you think there'll be some consolidation there, or do you think it's going to, people are going to be too protective of their, uh, their libraries? I don't think it's possible to protect your libraries, actually, in this day and age. I mean, we were talking earlier about aggregators. Um, if there's a way of making somebody else's content available without getting into legal problems and potentially making a few quid in the process, it will happen. Um, but the way that the way that I browse, the way increasingly that lots of people browse, not just for broadcast material, but for all material, is, is the Google model. You have an idea of what you're looking for. In fact, it may be very specific. Uh, and, and you go and hunt it out. It takes a few keystrokes and your search engine will take you to the place where you can find what it is you want. Um, and if you don't get it in a few seconds, you go and look for something else. Uh, I, you know, I, I know I'm very specific about what I will watch. I don't mind if I watch it on, on the big screen that's ripping the bricks out of my wall. <laughs> um, I was watching a program last night. My wife was watching it on her laptop. Um, watching I, the same program? Well, I only watch bits and pieces of it. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, it has to be said. I was wanting to watch something on the big screen, actually. Sport, you'd be surprised to know. Mm. And that wasn't happening until the laptop showing was, was finished. But it made wow. no difference. Uh, if I want to watch something in catch-up, I'll watch it on my iPad. It makes no difference. Again, I'll pick it up, I'll search for it, I'll find out where it is, and I'll stream it there and then.
Do you watch television as it's being broadcast? Do you ever kind of get in from a hard day's work and then turn the television on and, and kind of flick through the channels? Or are you like me? I kind of, I, I've got five or six shows I watch and I will watch an episode if I have time, but I would never turn the telly on and see what's on. No, no. It would have to be a terrible accident or I'd have to have a terrible, a terrible disease and I'm stuck in isolation somewhere. And going, oh, in well, a bubble. That's it. It's time <laughs> to Ebola. It's Ebola yeah. and that daytime TV. Now, there's a mix to, to, to chill the blood. <laughs> Nothing against daytime TV for those of you listening who are fans or work in daytime TV. But no, um, you know, why would I? I want to watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. You know, the, the, it's not it's not rocket science, mm. John. In the absence of you having any communicable diseases, do you do, do you watch television like in the old days? Are you appointment to view as well? Do you watch certain shows? I, I certainly watch uh, some shows when that when they're on, and uh, I find it quite relaxing to do that. To be absolutely honest, uh, so do you make a diary note? Do you think right Wednesdays at seven o'clock it's X, and then I will sit down to watch it then or? No, but I will. I will quite happily come home from work sometimes and and say, well, what, what's on the telly tonight? Let's just hit the button, and if it's any good, I'll watch it. And done rather than make a firm plan to do it. It's probably a little bit lazy of me, but uh, I think it's quite adventurous. It's quite relaxing. You must yeah. have random pick and mix. You know, it's very difficult though because even channels are trying to play catch up now. So certain channels are, are themed around certain content, be it comedy like Dave, for example. You know that there's going to be some kind of panel chat show or whatever but like bbc one bbc two itv they're still generalist channels where they're still trying to appeal to a mass audience and it seems to be dwindling would you agree kenny but it, you know, even within that within television i mean the the importance of search within television can't be understated if you're coming if you're putting together a new television program for example the program title needs to be something that will work well if people are using their electronic program guides and searching for particular topics you know if you're looking to 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 buy a house, you want to find a, a program that will tell you, yeah, there's a program about buying a house on. It doesn't pay to be too clever. It's kind of the difference between headlines and newspapers where we, we revel in more wordplay, whether it's uh, good wordplay or bad wordplay, mm-hmm. and, and trying to uh, come up with headlines that will, that will work for search engines uh, online. Um, so search for broadcasters is becoming just as important as search for, for other media, I think. I mean, John, in terms of Rupert Murdoch's language on this, if you look at his Twitter, he really does seem to think he's the underdog on this. And that's, to me, slightly worrying, is that when Rupert Murdoch is using language of the victim on his Twitter for saying that Google's got too big and regulators need to step in, to me, that suggests that, you know, draws into very sharp focus that Google must be massive. Would you agree? Sounds to me like a, a sort of slightly... Desperate measure, actually. Do you think, oh, do you think he's um, for, for, for Are you Rupert accusing Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch of being calculating? <laughs> for, for Rupert Murdoch to try and play the uh, the, the, the underdog big, card is, yeah. is, is, to be honest, a little bit unexpected and pretty rich. But, um, I mean, it does tell you that this is a serious issue. Uh, I don't think there'll be a huge amount of sympathy for, for the, the old guard, if you like, who are trying to defend... You know, current practices, which is what uh, what Rupert Murdoch is, is doing here. So. But do you think he's kind of big enough to take them on? Because if anyone's going to have the resources or be able to marshal the resources and the, the team necessary, it's going to have to be someone like Rupert, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, we discussed uh, the extent of the changes that are running through not just this business, but every business at the moment. And I don't think taking them on, so to speak, is the right attitude. You've got to think what is happening here and you've got to adapt to what is going on and you've got to be clever about it. It's a little bit like uh, sailing a boat, for example. You know, there's no point in trying to take on the weather. You've got to learn how to deal with it and steer your boat and 
fiddle with your sails accordingly. I'm not a sailor, so it'd probably run out of metaphor at this point. <laughs> but I think that's a better way to do it than try and sort of shake your fist at the wind and hope that everything will change. I agree with that. And th- there, is a, there is another point to be made here in that the idea of, of pitching um, Rupert Murdoch as us and you know, Netflix as them is fundamentally flawed. They're chasing the same audience or the same share of a, of a given audience. It's not a them and us um, scenario. Everybody's in it together. And uh, saying that we have, a, you know, we have a right to exist here and, and you guys are, are breaking that, it, it just mis- it, it fails to understand the fact that um, both those bus- sets of businesses, old school and new school, if you want to use those terms, um, are swimming in the same pond. Competing for eyeballs, it would seem. We're going to start mixing metaphors up. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're searching for eyeballs in the same pond. In the storm. <laughs> And finally, does big corporate PR even need the traditional media? Chevron is the latest company to launch its own news website, sidestepping the traditional press. Launched last January, the Richmond Standard provides a Chevron perspective on the local stories, meaning the company can publish news on its own terms without independent scrutiny. John, there seems to be echoes here of Eric Pickles and the, his objection in terms of like town hall pravdas. I don't really remember all that. Mm. Hey, how how worried should the traditional press be when we've got companies setting up their own newspapers, local authorities, etc., etc.? I would say not terribly worried at all, to be absolutely honest, because I don't think the the viewing or reading public uh, are really quite daft enough to to read something that is spoon fed to them by somebody with a very clear vested interest in in taking a particular point of view. Now, I mean, that may be the way that you can communicate with your employees as a big company, but I even doubt that, to be absolutely honest. I think there's a huge role still for traditional media. I think it's absolutely fair and legitimate for companies to uh, put the best gloss uh, around a story to make sure their point of view is heard and put in the most effective way. But then you do need to have some kind of filter, which is external to the company, which actually puts these things into perspective. And, you know, the reason I mention employees as well as external audiences is because quite often what you find with with an employee audience in a company is they will take much more seriously something that has been through a journalistic filter than something that has just been passed down from head office or wherever it may be. So uh, I don't think uh, this, um, this, this, this trend interferes in the slightest, actually, with the importance of the traditional media. And I count as traditional media, by the way, people on, on websites and all the rest of it. Just the It's the intermediary rather than the, the, the fact of whether this is radio or, bro, or, or print or, or online or anything else. It's just an intermediated piece. I think it's a vital function. I mean, Kenny, I, I know of my sins. I've actually worked and, and I'm very good friends with quite a few local newspaper editors and they do feel a bit threatened by these local newspapers because they look like newspapers and they're delivered to the door uh, and uh, maybe quite a lot of the consumers don't know any different. And, of course, it gives glowing coverage to the local council all the time. I mean, if you look at it from the local council's point of view, of course, is the local newspapers always knock the local council anyway because that's how you sell papers. When I was first elected as a local councillor, the editor gave me a talk and he said... Council does great job, we'll never sell newspapers. But we, if we splash on council makes a mistake again, that's going to drive, you know, readership. So in a sense, there's going to be a tension, isn't there? Well, that, I mean, that really gets to the to the heart of the matter. Um, good news stories occasionally are genuine stories. World's first heart transplant, pretty good story. Uh, cure for Ebola, that'll be a big story. I mean, you know, there, there's front page news and good news right there. But as a rule, man or woman gets out of bed, goes to work and does job competently, Ain't news to anyone. Who cares? Man or woman gets out of bed and screws up monumentally. Huge news. 
And that's, that's the issue with companies running their own newspapers. When things are going well, yes, if, you, if you've got some experienced hands there, they will dig out genuine, interesting stories. But the moment something goes slightly wrong, it's out of their control. And let's face it, you know, they might be able to, to squeeze local operations in, you know, in times of hardship, but they're not going to be able to squeeze or control Twitter. You know, mm. it, it just doesn't work mm. that way. And in fact, it's not even traditional journalists a lot of the time now who are most likely to pull them up on issues. It'll be the people inside. Um, you know, I've lost count of the number of times great stories have come out from organisations that have been leaked from, from within an organisation. Something doesn't feel right here. We need to get it out there and have somebody asking some hard questions. John, your group communications director for Legal and General, I mean, you know, tell us about how it works from your side in terms of the PR, because I imagine with some things you're trying to engender and create interest in the media, in, in your products and your services and what you're doing. And then sometimes do you have incoming press attention where you're having to manage it and shape it in the way? How, do, how does that work in terms of your day to day? Absolutely. We have communication going in both directions. It, it depends very much what the stories are that you're dealing with because you've got multiple audiences and some aspects of what we do, for example, the financial communication to the stock market and to shareholders and so on, is, is actually very heavy, heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. So you have to be incredibly careful about, about how you do that and what you say. There are other things which are quick responses to particular issues and there are some things which are, which are consumer targeted as opposed to institutionally targeted or, or, or B2B, if you like. Uh, so you have to mix and match it quite a lot. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think this, this intermediation by, the, by real journalists, if you like, uh, is so important because, you know, sitting in a corporate PR office, you have some idea of what your stakeholders are interested in and, and how a story should be told to them. But you don't have as much idea as somebody who's sitting there right at the interface. Mm. So you need to be on top of all of that. You, know, you also need, I think, as a, as a company... Uh, to be aware of what the questions are that people are asking. You know, if, if I wanted to just broadcast, if you like, straight-up propaganda about the company without any questions asked, well, I'd be in the brochure printing business, mm. not in the communications business. I mean, Kenny, you were at the top of your game when you are editor and on, on the kind of editorial side, and now you've moved into consultancy and media relations. I imagine you would have envisaged how it would be, but uh, was there anything that shocked you in terms of the day-to-day -day and how the job is? No, not at all. I mean, I worked very closely with um, the PR world when I was editing, um, particularly with the nature of Metro and the way that we um, reached out to try and get particular sorts of stories. We worked more closely at a senior level than other editors would have done. That's not to say that we took everything at face value. Far from that the case, actually, we were under scrutiny so much that we had to be doubly careful. I had enough experience of the industry to be able to go in with my eyes wide open. And the, um, we, we have a case study happening around us right now in terms of companies, organisations and individuals' ability to deal with, uh, with major issues as they're breaking in terms of one of the great communicators, Richard Branson. You know, within a couple of days of... Um, of that very sad end to, to, to the test for his, um, for his uh, space um, project, um, Branson was being hailed as a guy who, who knew how to communicate. He grabbed hold of the, the story, he tweeted, uh, he had emotionally reached out, uh, and he was being hailed as the guy who understood communications in the 21st century. This is the case study. And then, of course, well, I don't suppose five days pass, all of a sudden, the, the newspapers, the opinion formers, the 
questioners have moved in properly and started to pick apart some of the messages that were sent out there and to really start to apply proper pressure and to scrape away the veneer, a mm. very professional veneer. They're doing their job, of course. They are doing the job, exactly that. And he was doing his job, and he is an immensely able communicator. But even somebody with his ability has found himself on the receiving end of some very, very difficult questions and some very, very unpleasant headlines, as he should in, a, in circumstances like this. And if an organisation like his is not able to turn it around and to fool us all, if you like, mm. then... I don't think there can be many people out there, many organisations, who have the ability genuinely to run their own media operations and be taken seriously. I mean, John, it was very admirable of you to say earlier about, you know, if there was any negative stuff about your organisation online, that you would, you know, that that's part of the discourse, as it were. But surely if you are criticised, you must have an operation where you at least can challenge them if there are any inaccurate facts or something, because no PR person or no communications person ideally would like negative stuff in the headlines about their, their company. No, absolutely right, and, and of course we do that. Um, and I think, you know, any, any organisation worth its salt does exactly that. If facts are straightforwardly wrong then you go back and you try and correct them. Uh, now, you don't necessarily always uh, achieve a correction, but at least you can hopefully pre prevent it, prevent that same mistake at least happening all over again. So, yeah, absolutely we do that, and I think everybody does. I mean, there's no need to uh, kind of breach any confidences here, but sometimes uh, things are presented to me as a communications issue, whereas, in fact, they're, an actual, they're actually a business issue. So, for example, Kenny, you were saying there about Branson's plane. I think what we really need is to hear from engineers to decide whether any corners have been cut, whether there's any problem. And, and like you said, journalists are asking the right question. But ultimately, once the, the comms on either side uh, have said their bit, it has to reduce to the actual facts, which is, was that ship fit for purpose, or do these things happen? Well, these things do happen because, you know, those are events, dear boy. As, Indeed. You know, and um, tragedies make for, sadly, very engaging stories. With, uh, with the Branson incident, uh, we have a, actually we have a classic case in point of watching the, the process that, uh, that media business goes through. Mm. Um, the, uh, the supposition within two or three days of, um, of the accident was that there was a problem with the, the fuel system they were using. Say it's a new fuel system. It's basically a tank lined with rubber or nylon and some nitrous oxide in it. Um, but people had warned that this was very dangerous. And so sections in the media said, well, that's probably what the, the problem was because engineers or people who know have told us this very shortly afterwards. We discover actually there's a mechanical issue. There's a lever that's pulled a little bit too early. There's a part of the plane has moved that shouldn't have moved at that time in the flight. And so media doing what media does seeks out people who may know something, who may not know something, uh, and says, well, that's a good headline. Sounds plausible. We'll go with that. But they can change their minds. The guys who are responsible ultimately can't. I mean, John, naturally there's going to be a tension between corporate commerce people and, and journalism per se, because rightly, you know, uh, one, that they have slightly different agendas and they may come into conflict from time to time. But do you think that PR is slightly in the ascendancy now, given that newsrooms are so sparse these days, that there are so few journalists around? Do you think that, um, clearly not a, you know, you're, you work with an ethical organisation, but do you think that um, people are able to get away with more things in the corporate world because there are fewer journalists around? I think journalists are certainly under more pressure now than they were. There are fewer of them. They have more deadlines. Uh, you, you have this rolling news agenda as opposed to a sort of conference at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock and then file your copy by 6 <laughs> type of approach, which, which <laughs> you know, about used pints. to be the case. You know, and, and you could argue that um, 
that, uh, I protest. <laughs> Lies. <laughs> you, you could argue that, that that quality has gone down as a result. And there's less in-depth sort of thinking and research going on. Does that make things easier for people who are in PR teams and running communications departments? I'm not sure it does because what you gain, if you like, from having the journalists in a tearing hurry the whole time, it means you also lose in terms of opportunity to really explore an issue and kick it around and make sure they absolutely understand it. So it swings and roundabouts. Kenny, do you think that, I suppose last question for you as well, do you think that given that we have a 24-hour news media and things are speeded up so much, do you think that that sometimes encourages really PR-focused organisations like Virgin to speed up as well, that they think we've got to get a, a groove on with this and uh, it might encourage some companies to cut corners from time to time and that the media is actually slightly indirectly to blame? Well, when I started in newspapers back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was roughly four journalists for every PR person. And these days, there are roughly four PR people for every journalist. And in fact, there was figures that have just come out in America that suggest it's getting closer mm-hmm. to four and a half. So the whole thing has flipped in its head. It's a factor of 16. So from the perspective of the media, yes, there are far fewer people doing far more work all the time. Mm. And the pressure to produce volume as opposed to simply produce content to a given quality is there. It's huge. At the same time, there are fewer journalists for people in the PR world to communicate with. So there is a disadvantage for the PR world as well. Everybody is chasing fewer and fewer individuals who are less and less inclined to pick up the phone. That's not going to happen. I know loads of journalists that have taken themselves out of all these media databases because they don't want PR people emailing them and reading them. If if journalists want you, they'll dig you out and speak to you. Exactly. And that's the one time you don't want to be getting a call from the journalists, of course. I don't think it's necessarily just the case that particular businesses or particular media outlets have have changed. I mean, the whole world has changed. The pace of life, uh, the ability to pay attention for more than six seconds at a time for all of us, has, has changed. Our whole environment has changed in the space of a, of, you know, I was going to say in the space of a generation, but actually those of us who grew up, Johnny and I went to the same school together at times. <laughs> Which is the most bizarre coincidence, because you guys just established that at the beginning of this recording, didn't you, just before we started, that you went to school together. Haven't seen each other for 25 years, probably. No, I was looking for the red book and the ghost of Eamon Andrews to come out and go, this is your life. Both of you have aged reasonably well, if you don't mind me saying so. I haven't told you how old I am, though. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, um, I think we're running out of metaphorical tape there, so we might have to uh, uh, to bring proceedings to an end. But, Kenny, how do people uh, follow you on Twitter? Do you have a website or a blog that people can go to and keep in touch with what you're up to? Easiest way to follow me is I've kept uh, I've kept a foot in the in the old world, if you like. I'm at Metro Kenny, all one word. That's the best place to get hold of me. John, how do people follow you on Twitter or do people follow you on a blog? How do people get hold of or, or monitor what Legal and General are up to? The, the best way really to follow what Legal and General is up to is on our website. We, we do have a, a, a corporate Twitter account, but uh, possibly I would, I would recommend to people as the most interesting thing to go and look at our blog sites. Search online for legalandgeneralgroup.com. And for those of you that want to follow me, it's at Paul W.R. Blanchard. You can also go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address there where you will receive a shiny automated email once a fortnight to let you know when the new podcast is out. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!